good morning and welcome again to St. Paul's. Where you stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you send your spirit among us now, that your word proclaimed might reveal to us your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. The heavens opened up and a voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, my beloved son. If you didn't know anything about Jesus or the Bible and you were making up a story about God's son, son of God on earth, it probably wouldn't look like this. It might look like Hercules from Greek mythology, that half-human son of Zeus who was stronger than everybody and went around killing monsters. Or maybe it would look like Superman in a more modern incarnation, a handsome, humble hero who's all-powerful and invincible, who suffers none of the pains and inconveniences of being human. But if you were making up a story about the Son of God, what it for sure wouldn't look like is our reading from Matthew this morning of a poor 30-year-old peasant, a nobody, from an oppressed group in a back corner of a the backwater corner of a global empire who shows up at a religious riverbank revival held by a wild-eyed wilderness prophet and gets dunked. If you're joining us for the first time, we're exactly halfway through through a preaching series called The Story of Everything, which is taking us through the entire Bible in 20 weeks. Our preaching accompanies our congregation doing the E100 challenge, which is a hundred passages of Scripture that link the whole Bible together as a single story, five readings a week. And after ten weeks in the Old Testament describing the whole history of God's promises and faithfulness to humankind, this week we turn to the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the movement, the church that he left behind. It's the New Testament, literally the New Covenant, because it's where we see the fulfillment of all the prophecies made in the Old Testament. We see how the vast movement of God through history comes to a climax in Jesus. But what makes today's readings about the baptism and subsequent temptation of Jesus so surprising? Indeed, really what makes the whole of the New Testament surprising, I think, is that there's no way you could predict Jesus just by reading the Old Testament. Like, if I throw a baseball and you watch it in the air, you know where it's going to land. You know it's not going to take a sudden right turn. If you look at a train going down a track, you know where the train's headed. But all the prophecies and promises of God in the Old Testament, while they do have their own integrity to them, as Christians, we believe that they only make ultimate sense retrospectively through the lens of Jesus. There's a phenomenon in art called anamorphosis, where a picture only looks right when it's viewed from a certain angle. One famous example is the distorted skull in this Hans Holbein painting. It's that smear of paint at the bottom. Viewed head-on, that's what it looks like, but if you are at the right angle, it's foreshortened and it's a reminder of mortality if you're standing in the right place. Here's a sculpture of a frog that's so stretched out and distorted that you can only see it in truth when it's reflected in a convex mirror. And maybe the Bible's kind of like that. Because God's loving faithfulness stretched through time can seem distorted 
but it becomes crystal clear when it's focused on the lens and clarifying person of Jesus Christ. In today's reading, we hear about the baptism and subsequent temptation of Jesus. These two episodes in Jesus' life are often read separately, but I think it's important to connect them, and I want to show you why this morning. Because these passages show us what it means to call Jesus the Son of God, and which is to say these passages show us the essence of the Christian faith, which we can either accept or reject, but here it is, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God of the universe. We start with Jesus' baptism. A bit of context, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has set up a sort of religious revival on the banks of the Jordan River, and he's called the Jewish people there to repent of their sin through a ritual washing, which is baptism. And Jesus comes along to be baptized, and John balks because he knows who Jesus really is. He knows that Jesus doesn't have any sins to wash away. But Jesus says, no, let's do this because it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. It's a bit of a puzzling thing for Jesus to say. It's confused interpreters ever since. What's it mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, there's not one standard interpretation, but here's what I think it means. I think it means that Jesus, as the Son of God, didn't stand apart from humanity, above humanity. He's no Superman lurking in his fortress of solitude. He's fully human. He's God among us. He's God with us, and he didn't have sin to wash away, but he joins us anyway in what we do for, to fulfill the law of repentance before God. He says, here I am, I'm with you. And it turns out to be the right move because when he comes out of the water, he sees the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descending like a fiery bird and the voice of the Father declaring, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Here's maybe the clearest biblical picture of the Trinity. God is three in one. God the Father, anointing God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, lashing heaven to earth. Now here's why we need to read the baptism and the temptation which follows after together, I think. If you look at verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus comes out of the water and it says, The heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit descending. There's nothing else that says everyone else saw this. Now, not John, not the other people around. It seems like it was a private revelation. So you have to wonder, what was Jesus thinking after he gets back on the riverbank and he's drying off? What, what does he wonder about what he saw and heard? Does he doubt? You might think, no way. I mean, doubts are for me. Jesus didn't have any doubts. He's the Son of God. How could he doubt? And I, I'm not saying that Jesus did doubt. But he could have. He could have. Because when we say that Jesus was the Son of God, it's easy to slip into thinking that Jesus is just God in a skin suit, like God cosplaying as a human being. Here's the omniscient, all-powerful creator of the universe playing pretend with mortality. But that's the Hercules fantasy. That's the Superman delusion. Now, when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean that the omniscient, all-powerful creator of the universe is fully and perfectly revealed, depicted in the human being Jesus of Nazareth, this guy, in all of his human limitation and finitude. Jesus gets tired, he gets hungry, he gets angry, he gets sad. And what we see over and over and over again in Scripture is that his faith in God persists precisely in the midst of all the struggle that is human life. It's a human faith, it's a human trust. 
And there's no faith, there's no trust without at least the possibility of doubt. And that's why Jesus' faith had to be tested through the temptation. Was he really going to believe what he'd seen and heard when he came out of the water, that the Father had declared him the beloved Son and anointed him through the Holy Spirit? So we see chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit sends him out into the wilderness. This isn't just an idea that Jesus comes up with. He's led by the Spirit into the desert. And there he fasts 40 days, 40 nights, all that time, no food. This is about the limit of what a human being can do. He's pushed to his physical limits as a person. And after 40 days, in the depths of starvation, the devil comes to him. The devil, the adversary, the spiritual force that's opposed to God. And he tempts him. Temptations. He tempts him with three temptations. The first is the temptation of hunger. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into loaves of bread. But Jesus replies, it is written, which means scripture says, one doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Second temptation is the temptation of safety. If you're the son of God, jump, jump off this temple. Just, just do it. And here the devil quotes scripture to say, do it. God's going to save you. The devil can quote scripture too. But Jesus replies, it's written, don't test the Lord your God. And the third temptation is the temptation of control. The devil says, I'll give you every kingdom if you worship me. If you praise me, if you love me, if you submit to me. I mean, isn't that a fair price for all that power? But Jesus replies, away with you, Satan, which means adversary. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So what do we see here? I want to suggest we're seeing Jesus resisting temptation in two ways. Now, the first is simply that he doesn't fall for the devil's trick of putting a question mark where God has put a period. God said, this is my beloved son, and the devil tries to turn it into a question like, well, can you really trust that, though? And Jesus does trust that. He trusts God's word perfectly. He stakes his life on it. But second and far more significant I want to suggest this morning is that the devil is trying to tempt Jesus into being the wrong kind of son of God. The devil's trying to tempt Jesus into being the son of God in the wrong way. Like the devil's all, okay, Jesus, you heard what you heard. You saw what you saw. You're right. You are the son of God. Totally. So act like it. If you're the son of God, you don't need to be hungry. If you're the son of God, you should be safe. If you're the son of God, you should be in charge. The devil tempts Jesus into being the kind of son of God that you or I, or the devil as it turns out, would make up. Hercules, Superman, a son of God who's the master of his domain, invincible, in control. And to literally play devil's advocate here, doesn't he kind of have a point? Because isn't that what being God or the Son of God should be all about? But maybe we're just inclined to think that, that the Son of God should be Hercules or Superman, because that's what we all want. If you think about it, the vast majority of our lives can be described by the three temptations of Jesus. We hunger. We hunger. 
Our bodies hunger, most fundamentally, for the food that keeps us alive. There's nothing wrong with hungering for food. But that doesn't mean that hunger can't go wrong. Because our body's hunger isn't just about mere survival. We hunger for more food, for better food, for fine food, for too much food. Or we hunger for the chemical hit of alcohol or nicotine or whatever your drug of choice might be. We hunger for pleasure. We hunger for sex. A lot of the time, our hungers drive us, even when we don't know it, most especially when we don't know it. And sometimes, with addiction, our hungers own us. How much of your life is ruled by your hunger? We crave safety, too. That's the second temptation. And who doesn't want this? We've been walking around for two years trying to stay safe. And our RRSPs and our TFSAs, all our insurance policies that you have to have to exist, to like step foot on the sidewalk, the fundamental social architecture of the modern welfare state, all of this is an attempt to make us as safe as we can be. And listen, there's nothing wrong with safety, but that doesn't mean that our desire for safety can't go wrong. Because to be alive is to be vulnerable, and to love is to be vulnerable, and it's possible to be so concerned with your own safety that it costs you the living of life, that it costs you the love of your neighbor. How much of your life is ruled by your need to be safe? And finally, we crave control. Don't we just? From our earliest childhood, wanting to do it ourselves, Pour the cereal, put on our clothes, into adulthood to be in charge of your situation. There's nothing wrong with being in control to a certain degree. Nobody wants to get shoved around. But that doesn't mean that our desire for control can't go wrong. Because other people are messy. And they'll mess up your nice life. So if you want control over your own life, you kind of have to control other people at least a little bit, don't you? And there's the rub, because everybody wanting control over their own lives means needing to control others, at least a little, who want control themselves. And so is it any wonder we fight? Our anger, our wrath, it's the furious child of our desire for control. Of course, we're watching in live time in Ukraine the desire for control on a geopolitical scale. On the one side, the Ukrainian people's desire to control their own affairs, which is legitimate and just and good. And on the other side, the Putin regime's desire to control manifesting as this death-dealing domination. Jesus turned down the devil's offer of all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, but there are plenty, even today, who are happy to take him up on it. How much of your life is ruled by your desire to be in control? How much of all of our lives is ruled by our hungers, our desires for safety and control? isn't so much of human life, the way we live, work, shop, interact with each other, basically an attempt to satisfy these three basic needs in ways that go right and in ways that go horribly wrong. And if so much of our lives is about satisfying these needs, whether we name them as such or not, wouldn't it make sense that we'd imagine a son of God who doesn't have to worry about any of that stuff? And if these needs represent the fundamental preoccupations of human life, is it at all surprising that hunger, safety, control are how the devil tries to tempt the human son of God, Jesus? 
Jesus chooses differently. He's a different kind of son of God. You couldn't make him up if you tried. Not a Hercules or a Superman who can satisfy every human need. Jesus, the Son of God, in his temptation, shows us that under all of life's needs, the most basic need of every human being is simply God. We need food to live. But even more fundamentally, we live because God's word has spoken us and our food into being. We need safety, but more fundamentally, it is the will of God that holds us in life and in death. We need control, but more fundamentally, it's God who deserves our worship. We are tempted to imagine that the needs of life are coextensive with life itself. That, that, that life consists in satisfying life's needs. That satisfying the real needs of life, and there are real needs, but satisfying the real needs of life is what life is. And you can spend, you can waste your whole life chasing after life's needs and imagine that that's living. But in Jesus' responses to the devil, he shows us that beneath the tangle of needs that we mistake for life itself, there's a need more fundamental still, fundamental like the hulk of an iceberg hidden beneath the surface of the sea, and it's the need to love and to be loved. The need to know love, and God is love. You are my beloved son, God says to Jesus, and that's what makes Jesus different from Hercules and Superman. You are my beloved son, God said to Jesus. And it's the absolute knowledge of God's love that relativizes every other human need because all hunger will pass, safety will come and go, control will ebb and flow, but God's love remains. And this might sound hollow because what I'm describing here won't necessarily fill an empty belly or stop a bullet though people driven by God's love will fill bellies and stop bullets. And I don't want you to hear what I'm saying as somehow mitigating against the importance of justice. Because the needs of life are real needs and they need to be satisfied to a certain degree. We all need hunger, we all need safety, we all need some basic control over our own selves. And if you're hungry, God wants you to be full. I want you to be full. And if you're not safe, and just given the numbers here, somebody doesn't feel safe at home, somebody here right now, and if that's you, God wants you to be safe. And I want you to be safe, and don't, don't hear me saying otherwise, please. And if you feel out of control, God wants you to have some control over yourself, over your situation, these are real needs. But these needs can become temptations when we chase them beyond their basic satisfaction. And I know how they press in. I feel like a hypocrite standing here in front of you because if you ask the people who live with me, they would tell you how hungry I get and how anxious I get and how scared and how much I don't like not being in charge and in control. 
But what I want you to know above all else is what I want to know above all else, which is this, the, the sufficiency of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. It is enough. Even when you are hungry and scared and out of control. And listen, neither you nor I as the, are the natural-born son of God. Jesus, he's the only one who's ever been or ever will be. But here's the promise of Christianity, as St. Paul, our church's namesake, puts it in his letter to the church in Rome. He says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. You have received a spirit of adoption. And if you're a Christian, this is true for you. You are declared a beloved child of God. And if you are seeking, if you are exploring, th- this can be true for you. There's a way here, there's a life here for you to follow. That same spirit that descended on Jesus, that anoints him as the beloved son of God, that same spirit can rest on you, lead you, declare you a beloved child of God. It can comfort you in your hunger, your fear for safety, and your grasping for control. At some point today or this week, you're you're probably going to, yeah, let me just put it out, you are, you are going to feel the temptation of one or all of those needs wrapping around you like a chain. And it it can feel like it's like two inches away from your eyes and you can't see anything else. And the thing, the only thing you can do in that moment is just pause and remember that this is not life. The need of life, but this is not life. Life is more than your hunger, your safety, your control, or your lack of it. Life is about God. And it might be right in your face, but you can look down into your heart. And you can call on that Holy Spirit. And like a dove descending, the Spirit will settle gently on the closed fist of your heart. Settling and rustling to loosen your fingers until they unfurl and spread in welcome. And God will make his home in you and give you peace. Amen.